Good morning. Hey, there are a few things I want to make you aware of before we pray for a minute, and then we'll go into this morning's message. Uh, first is some of us have been praying for Ed and Jeanette Hall as uh, his mom entered into hospice care, and we got word that his mom passed during the night. So please be praying for Ed and Jeanette. We're also praying today for Deb Clapp. Deb uh, had an, a TIA while she was in her small group study during the week, unfortunately got instant care, and uh, just praying that God will continue that healing process for her. I also want to celebrate a couple of things um, where excellence shows up in the way that people are living out their faith and trying to serve God. Uh, my friend Don Rosen is here this morning. I don't know if you know Don, but Don is a football coach of one of the local semi-pro teams, and they uh, had a perfect season going through their regular season, only lost at the, the New England championship game, so they were 12-1. and one. And Don asked me to pray over him early in the season because he was trying to model what is it a Christ-like coach like in that kind of scenario. And the other excellence uh, factor that I want to acknowledge is um, Mark Bell. Mark is the head coach of the Eastern Nazarene College men's soccer team, and they won their championship, and they're playing this afternoon in a championship game of sort of the New England collegiate level for Division three colleges, and I just thought those were all things worth acknowledging when people try to serve the Lord and let their leadership shine, specifically because they're Christians. We want to acknowledge that too. Let's join in prayer for a moment. Father God, we, we ask that you would walk with all of us through the various seasons of life we go through. We, we thank you that you walk us through seasons of excellence when we dedicate things to you, and you also walk us through those, those valleys of life that are hard to walk through. So we, we pray for Ed and Jeanette this morning that you will give them strength, that you'll give them understanding, that you'll continue to heal their hearts and that you, you will bless what they say and do over the next several days as they uh, say goodbye to Ed's mom and as they celebrate her life. Lord, we pray for Deb, and we ask that your strong arms would be around her and everyone who gives her care over the next several days and weeks as she adjusts to uh, whatever changes are coming. We thank you for preserving her life and for preserving all of her faculties. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you call us to serve in life and ask that you will grant us all the wisdom and strength and compassion that we need at each moment and every day. Lord, internationally, there are many churches today that are praying for uh, Christians who are undergoing persecution in an international day of prayer. And uh, we join our hearts with all those people around the world and we pray for those who are suffering in various lands because they are Christians like in Sudan and in Afghanistan and in some places where this morning it's a very, very difficult place to acknowledge the name of Jesus openly. We pray that you grant these folks courage and protection and the knowledge that you are with them no matter what you call them to do each day. We ask, Lord, as well, as we look into your word that you would give us understanding in knowing how to live in the midst of an increasingly troubled time. Thank you for each life that is here. Thank you for the stories that we could tell if we were only to stop and share today the ways that you have shown up in our lives. And we ask that you would draw near to each of us and allow us to draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, 
A pastor named Glenn Pease wrote these words, only the determined spirit is willing to risk doing what everyone else considers foolish. Only the determined spirit will risk doing what other people consider to be foolish. Glenn Pease wrote these words about the determination of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn was imprisoned for eight years for making one disparaging remark about Stalin, the leader of his land, in a private letter as he was serving as an army captain in the Red Army during World War II. It was there in prison that Solzhenitsyn was overcome with a powerful sense that he needed to begin to write the thoughts that God was impressing on his mind. While the rules of the prison restricted the use of paper and writing, and he knew that anything that he committed to paper would ultimately be confiscated and and read by the guards, uh, his mind was on fire with observations about life and truth and freedom. However, he was determined. So he began writing lines of verse and committing them to memory. He would write down several lines and then memorize them and then burn the paper so that nobody would find them. And each day he would rehearse those same lines. A member of the Russian Orthodox faith, he noticed that the Catholic prisoners in the gulag would also recite prayers, and they would usually do so holding a rosary. He didn't believe in using the rosary, but he realized it was a memory tool, and so he made his own rosary chain out of hardened bits of bread. And soon, his uh, fellow Catholics um, began mocking him because they only had 40 on theirs, but he had 100 of these little uh, items of bread on his rosary chain. And with each one... He memorized literally hundreds and hundreds of lines of what he was writing in his mind. And as we'd go through that rosary chain every day, he got to the point where he had memorized 12,000 pages of his writings that he had committed to memory and then burned. And when he was finally released, he wrote some of the most classic novels about freedom and life and about God that have ever been written in the history of the world, leading to a Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970. Now, here's the point of all of that. Only the determined spirit is willing to risk what everyone else considers foolish, Glenn Pease wrote. And Pease notes that we discover the same kind of spirit with the risk that Ruth takes by returning with her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, to a new land and a new people in the midst of a personal crisis, just as a national crisis was lifting. Good morning. We're going to look at the book of Ruth for the next few weeks. And so I'm glad that you're here today, and we're launching a new series that we're calling Hope When Your World Falls Apart. Anybody feel like your world fell apart about 18 months ago? I think in some way, shape, or form, we can all identify with this concept. This short series is based on observations from the four chapters of the little book of Ruth in the Old Testament. It comes right after Judges, if you were to to look for it and read up during the week. So I want to welcome you here to North River today. I'm glad to see all of you who are here with us in Pembroke in person. And also, uh, I want to welcome our online friends who are with us as well. I'm glad that you have taken the time to prioritize this day and this hour and to be with us today. For the past 18 months, we have been separated from many of the connections that we have known in the past. And so we thank God for the technology that allows us to function as a hybrid congregation. Today's question that we are all pursuing is this. How do we find hope when your world falls apart? Our topic as part one of this series is turning toward hope. And here's the main idea that I want to get across this morning. God blesses our determination to turn toward the hope he provides, even when we have strayed far from his grace. 
How do we find hope when our world begins to fall apart? I have three suggestions for you that are rising from this first chapter of the book of Ruth. Here's the first one. Remember that God cares for the hopeless. He cares about the hopeless and for the hopeless. In verse 6, David wrote, uh, read for you a few moments ago, when Naomi heard that in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. A little while later in verse 7, it says she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Let me walk you through just an overview of the book of Ruth. The entire story of Ruth takes place in a season of crisis. The opening part of chapter 1 places the account of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, during the period of the Judges. If you haven't read the book of Judges in the Old Testament for a long time, let me give you a quick reminder. This was a turbulent time for the people of Israel that took place after the death of Joshua and before the reign of Saul as the first king of Israel. During this period, God raised up judges, one by one, who led Israel out of points of great distress and toward stability. This included religious distress when Israel's people began to worship the idols of the nations around them. It included military distress when they were harassed or conquered by foreign kings, and it often included economic distress after wars and battles ravaged the land. Economic desperation led Naomi's family on an unconventional step. Verse 1 tells us that due to a famine in the land of Israel, they left Bethlehem and they moved to Moab. Think of the story of Israel. The people of Israel had been brought out of slavery in the land of Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan, forming a new nation that was beginning to become known as Israel. The people of Israel had waited for hundreds of years for God to rescue them and give them a home of their own. Now crisis, and specifically famine, can lead people to take unconventional steps, risky even. In this case, economic desperation led the family of Elimelech to pull up and move to a land where Jews had not been welcome. This sense of desperation becomes clearer when we understand the names. The names matter in this particular story. So the opening chapter of the book of Ruth introduces us to people and places with meaningful names. You might know this reading it just in English, but years ago I was part of a group of people who had to translate Ruth from Hebrew and into English, and there was so much that I never saw until that exercise. The name Elimelech, the father of this family, means my God is king. The name of his wife, Naomi, means my pleasant one. So she had obviously had parents who greatly loved her, and she was the the pleasant one in the family that they all laughed about. I often wonder if she was one of those children that arrived years late as a surprise, and, and older parents who never expected to be raising another child named her Naomi, my pleasant one. But then we find that their two sons also have names, which makes me wonder if they were creatively given these names in the telling of the story. Malon, the first son, his name means sickly, and the second son's name is Kilion, and his name means failing or wasting away. You almost get a sense what's going to happen when you read these names in the story. And then there are two locations that dominate the landscape. First, they leave and return at the end of the chapter to Bethlehem. Bethlehem in Hebrew literally means house of bread. So you get the sense that it was a place of very fertile territory with bountiful crops. 
And they moved to Moab. Okay, there's no special meaning of the name of Moab, but Moab was a neighboring country about 50 miles southeast of Bethlehem. And Judges chapter 3 tells us of how the king of Moab had oppressed Israel for 18 years. And the people there worshipped an idol god named Chemosh, an angry god that sometimes required infant sacrifice. This was not the place where Jewish people were going to feel welcome, and they normally moved. It was a, a huge economic depression that led Elimelech and Naomi to move their family to sojourn there. All of this is why I described Naomi's situation as hopeless. Putting together the pieces, this is how the book of Ruth opens. A Jewish family led by a man whose name means my God is king and a woman whose name means my pleasant one leave the house of bread, otherwise known as Bethlehem, to live as resident aliens in an idol-worshiping land known for oppressing Israel. Their sickly sons both go with them, both marry, and then the father and both sons die early. Doesn't this sound like a desperate situation? Aren't you uplifted right now and glad that we're talking about Ruth? But if we stopped with these opening observations only, we would miss the heart and the value of the book of Ruth. So the first lesson is, remember that God cares for the hopeless. Here is an entire book that is written from the perspective of two women who start in the most hopeless situation that they'd ever been in in their lives. The second suggestion is, recognize how God comes to our aid. Here we begin to find the great value of this book. Verse 6 reveals the first glimpse of what God is up to in this time of crisis. Verse 6 says, When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. He'd done this by providing food for them. Naomi heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. She's in another country but not that far away, and soon the news spread that God has come. He has not forgotten his people. I have news for you. Whenever God shows up in power, that kind of news spreads quickly. We are desperate for signs of hope, for signs that God is at work. And in a season of famine, this kind of news spread fast. Next, we see how Naomi responds to this news. It says in the back half of verse 6, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Home for Naomi, not so much for the daughters-in-law who had grown up in Moab. Verse 7 says, she left and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So she prepared to return home. Bethlehem, after all this time, was still what she thought of as home. The famine was over. That would mean a great deal in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small town known for agriculture and tending sheep. And when the famine hit, things got rough for everyone, for everyone depended on the crops. But when God shows up, there will be wheat and barley to harvest. There will be plenty of work, and people will go back to jobs. And so Naomi prepares to return home, and she sets out on the road that would lead her back to Judah. Here's what I love about Naomi as we find her in this first chapter of Ruth. Even though she blames God, she moves toward home. She moves toward hope. She says at one point to her daughters-in-law, it is more bitter for me. Later on in another chapter, we'll realize when she gets home, she tells the people who welcome her as Naomi, saying, don't call me Naomi, my pleasant one any longer. Call me Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew, because God has made my life bitter. Her perspective at this point is skewed. 
She is blaming God for everything that's gone wrong in the world and for how her, how her life is turned upside down. But that doesn't scare off God. That's one of the great notes about this. You and I can have a very skewed perspective and we can look at God and shake our fist, but in his determination to deliver his grace, God is not put off by our misunderstandings of what is really at work. We are able to see as the readers of this book what, what Naomi herself could not see, that God was beginning to unfold something marvelous. You may find yourself in a period of great distress. Maybe your distress is economic distress or your distress is family distress or, or some kind of crisis that you've gone through. And I just want to say that very, very often we are much like Naomi in this situation. We can only see what we see and we can't always see what God is up to behind the scenes. And what this book reminds us of is how God is at work in ways that we do not yet see. So do not give up on him. Trust that God is about to surprise us once again. And then she puts herself on the road that leads to hope. She refuses to stay, to stay stuck in Moab, and she gets on the road. She heads toward the place where the Lord has come to aid his people. This is so relevant for us today. If we remember that God cares about the hopeless, if we recognize that God comes to the aid of his people, if we put ourselves on the road that leads toward hope, there is so much that God can do when we get on the road toward hope. Have you ever heard that phrase, it's harder to steer a parked car than it is one that is moving? And so it is often with us when we begin to get in motion and move toward where God is at work. God can steer us much more easily. And she started moving toward those signs of hope. Third, take hold of those who choose the way of hope. Jump down to verse 16 with me. It's, Ruth has a sister-in-law named Orpah, not Oprah, but Oprah's mother got it kind of messed up was why she got the name she got. She's intending her to give her a biblical name, but Orpah eventually goes back to her own people, to her own family, and Ruth determines that she will stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she will move with her into this land that she's never ventured into. Verse 16 picks this up. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So there are tears and sadness as Naomi responds to both Orpah and to Ruth. Their world has fallen apart too. The difference between them and Naomi is that they are still young and there's still hope for them. In Israel's tradition, there was a leveret law that meant that if uh, a man died, it was the responsibility of his brother to care for his widowed wife and even to marry her as a, a second wife in order to provide and protect for her. But Naomi has no more sons. That, that's what explains that very odd passage about, would you wait for sons if I had even more? It's part of the tradition of that land and how people were cared for. After urging them both to return to their own families, Orpah finally goes back home and Naomi lets her go. 
She has to do this in order to move on with her life and in order to move into a better future. But Ruth responds with her beautiful words of commitment. She chooses Naomi wherever Naomi will go, wherever Naomi will stay. She chooses Naomi and Naomi's people. She chooses Naomi and Naomi's God. This is the Bible's way of saying that Ruth was all in. And she even declares that she will die where Naomi dies. This isn't a short-term passion. This is faith commitment. Ruth has no idea what the future holds, but she is in it for the long haul. Some couples choose to cite Ruth's declaration at their weddings with two of the most beautiful verses in the Old Testament scriptures. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Long before these words were taken over by wedding couples, they described the kind of commitment that can emerge within a faith community. Ruth was free to go her own way, but chose to stick with Naomi. It had more to do than with Naomi alone. She was choosing Naomi's God. She was taking a huge risk because she had no way of knowing what would unfold. Would she be received in this new land, or would she be rejected as an outsider? And so, leaving everything behind in Moab, the land of her home, we wonder what kind of life will she find. So here are these three steps that Ruth and Naomi take together. Remember that God cares about those who have had the hope kicked out of them. Remember that God comes to the aid of those who turn toward the hope that he provides. Where do you see signs of hope? Move in that direction. And take hold of those who choose the way of hope. And let those who abandon that road walk their own path. Keep walking toward the God of hope. So I have a question for you as we enter this series. Has, has your world been falling apart? Perhaps you fit one of these categories. You're going through a season of loss. I didn't know when I wrote these words that we'd be talking about Ed and Jeanette and, and the long wait that they've been through over this past week. Perhaps a parent or a friend or a family member of yours has died and during this last season, you weren't able to celebrate the way that you would have in earlier times. Perhaps you had one of those private family-only outdoor ceremonies around the gravesite because you couldn't gather in any place else. I want you to know something on the confidence of this biblical book of Ruth. You matter to God, and He knows what you're still going through. Take heart in knowing that he came to the aid of two women who are at the center of this biblical account of crisis and loss. Head toward signs of hope. Remember that God is known for coming to the aid of his people. And as you move toward hope, he will continue to direct you. Perhaps you've wandered far from the blessings of God. We are not told that Elimelech and Naomi did anything wrong in going to Moab, but it seems odd that they would leave the land of God's promise of blessing to his people and go to a place where Jews were not welcome. They were desperate. They made what seemed like the right decision at the time. And then Naomi and Ruth found themselves outside of the region that God was blessing when God finally visited Israel and blessed their crops. So I love the line that says that Naomi put herself on the road that leads toward home. 
Call out to God. Start moving. He can give you direction far more easily when you are moving rather than staying back. Take these first important steps. Remember that God cares about you even when your hope is gone. Realize that God comes to the aid of those who move toward Him. However small the step, move toward the God of the Bible. Move toward Jesus. And reattach yourself to people who commit themselves to God's way. There you will find company and encouragement and reinforcement. You will find others who are connecting and bonding over shared faith, shared scars and hurts, and a shared love for God and His people. God blesses our determination to turn toward the hope He provides, even when we have strayed far from His grace. I wonder if you would pray this closing prayer with me before we go into our time of communion. I put it in the back of your notes and hopefully it will come up on the screen behind me. Let's do this together. Lord, even when I have strayed far away, guide me in your pathways and give me the courage to head toward the hope that you provide and the wisdom to stay close to people who love you and who walk in your ways. Amen. I hope that you took a communion cup on your way in this morning. Uh, these are a little bit more user-friendly than the ones we had a month ago. Okay. But on the bottom side, if you peel that off, the little wafer will drop into your hand. Hold that and we'll, we'll take this together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat this together. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming in the flesh, for taking on human form. However small it is, this piece of bread reminds us that you who had existed from eternity in spirit humbled yourself to take on human form like us and to live in this land of wonder and yet brokenness and then to be broken for us. Thank you for coming. Thank you for living on this earth. Thank you for suffering on our behalf. Paul goes on and he says, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's peel off that top layer and just hold it for a moment. I want you to say something with me. The church throughout the years has believed three simple things about Jesus that are so important. Christ was born. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Will you say those three things with me? Christ was born. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Let's drink in memory of Jesus. Lord, thank you that comes from the hope that rises when we look into your word 
And as we look into this story of Ruth and Naomi that starts with such desperation and yet leads towards a vision of the Redeemer. You are the ultimate Redeemer that even the book of Ruth was pointing toward from the beginning. You are the Redeemer who restores life and who is dwelling in the shadows, operating and adjusting things on the pathway so that as Naomi and Ruth turn toward you, they found your kind of leadership and your kind of blessings unfolding for them. I pray that as we trust in you, that in the midst of all that goes on around us in the world, you will continue to lead us toward those signs of blessing, toward your presence that makes all the difference when you show up. So thank you for reminding us that God cares about the hopeless in seasons of great crisis and that you continue to show a way forward through your mercy, your grace, and even more so with your presence in our lives. Walk with us this day and this week and throughout all the rest of our lives as we serve you. But allow us to know that this morning we were in your presence and that we were beginning, all of us, to turn toward hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.